will spend eternity praising you and giving you thanks. Because you alone are worthy of our praise. You intercede for us, Lord Jesus. You intercede for us continually, day by day, pleading with the Father on our behalf, protecting us, leading us, feeding us, disciplining us, doing everything necessary to sanctify us and to make us more like Christ. And this morning, Father, we would we desire to see the glory of God. We desire to see the glory of Christ, the glory of our salvation. And we desire to see ourselves in that picture, rightly understood and set in the right place so that we can worship you truly and rightly. And we have so much to learn. Oh, Father, praise you for this book that teaches us all that we need to know about life and godliness. Lord, we need to know these truths this morning. And so we pray, Father, that it wouldn't just be me who speaks. It would be you through your word. Fill us with your spirit. Protect us from error. And change us, Lord, I pray, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians. And uh, some of you know, here's my book of Ephesians. See that? This is my book of Ephesians. We, we use Ephesians so much around here, it is just torn out of my Bible. Um, Ephesians is such a profound book for us. I don't know about you, but I want you to think about last week for a minute. Wasn't that baptism service a glorious thing? Um, isn't it great to see fresh faith being expressed verbally and publicly and boldly as it was last week? I just love that. I love that. And their testimonies were so different. I mean, think about it. Two sisters who were saved out of Roman Catholicism. And their boldness, their joy, their love of Christ right now is, is something the rest of us aspire to. There was a young man who grew up here in Calvary Bible Church. He was baptized. A young lady, a mother, who watched her husband come to faith in Christ after many, many years of thinking that they were believers. And his coming to Christ was used by God to show her her need of Christ. She was baptized last week. And, and then there was the pastor's kid. <laughs> My, oh, my, pastor's kids. Um, this one in particular who was part of Calvary before Calvary was a Bible church. And they're all different. They're all different, different backgrounds, different stories. But there's one thing that every one of them have in common. Not one of them deserved the salvation they received. Not a single one. And if there was one who had attempted to be baptized and thought that they were good enough for it, they would have been prevented from doing so. Every one of them had come to a point in their lives that they realized what a wretched sinner they really were, how, how contemptible their heart was before God, how dark, how black, how wicked, how evil. As Jeremiah says, it is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Interestingly, the next verse says, I, the Lord, know the heart. I know, your, I know your heart. I know your condition. And every one of these people believed that, and they testified to it. Their desperate need for reconciliation with God, their desperate need for the cross of Christ and his resurrection, his blood, his righteousness. And this is the way it is with everyone who comes to know Christ. 
Romans chapter 4, verse 5 has become one of my favorite texts because it so helped me uh, about two years ago when I was counseling a brother. This so helped me and him understand the gospel as it should be understood. When it says, Romans 4, 5, here it explains, Paul explains that, very simply stated, God justifies the ungodly. God declares righteous those who are unrighteous. He justifies the ungodly. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's think first about what it doesn't mean. This is what it doesn't mean. God justifies the ungodly. What it does not mean is that God's grace is so expansive and powerful and all-searching that it is not only able to justify the righteous, but can reach to the furthest extremity and even rescue the unrighteous. It's not what it means. Some of you are thinking, that's what I thought it meant. It's not what it means. God justifies the ungodly. You know what it means? Here's what it means. The only people whom God justifies are the ungodly. The only people. This is what Paul means. The only people God ever saves are those who realize they are ungodly. A person who believes he is well will never go to a physician. Jesus made that clear. A person who believes his car is running just fine will never take it to a mechanic. Um, one of my boys has a car they have to push start every time. I hope they understand something's broken with it. You ought to take it to a mechanic. But until you understand that something's broken, you'll never take it to a mechanic. A person who thinks his roof has no need of repair will never call a roofer. And guess what? A person who believes they are righteous will never cry out to God for forgiveness or reconciliation. And so here's what God says. Through Paul, God justifies the ungodly and only the ungodly. It is not for the righteous that, that Christ has come. Righteous people don't need righteousness. They already think they have it. And until they desire it, they'll, they'll never ask for it. Until they ask for it, they'll never receive it. And this perspective on the human condition, however, is absolutely contrary. It could not be more different and contradictory to the world's view of the human condition. The world doesn't want you to see yourself as a sinner. The world is repulsed by the idea. And they've come up with all kinds of ways to convince you that it would be un unhealthy, not good for you to think that you are a sinner. It's bad, it's psychologically unhealthy, and may even lead to a number of mental disorders and psychoses, they say. And one of the distinguishing marks of the age in which we live is that people are generally obsessed with maintaining a high opinion of themselves. We're obsessed with how we look, how we feel, how much money we make, how smart our kids are, how good are they at sports, how attractive to the opposite sex, how do other people think of us? And so we, um, we buy things that we can't afford with money we don't have to impress people we don't know. Why? We just want to feel good. 
want to feel good about us. We want to know that other people feel good about us. Can I just tell you that that is contrary to Scripture? And if you live that way and you're an unbeliever and don't know it, you'll never be a believer. You'll never be a child of God until that changes. Unfortunately, this is not only true in the world, but it's also become a reality in the church as well. Just listen to the kinds of commercials that are broadcast in between songs on Christian radio. And so many of them are about services that promise to make you feel better, look better, and give you more self-confidence. And can I just say, in addition to that, that most of them are geared toward women. Ladies, be careful. But we bought into the psychological fallacy that the most important thing in life is that we feel good about ourselves. We feel good about ourselves when we take tests and do badly. We feel good about ourselves when we do things that make us feel guilty, because we are guilty. If you ever do begin to struggle with your personal problems and feel badly about yourself, then psychology has offered a seemingly endless list of syndromes, disorders, addictions, and diseases to blame so that you won't have to take the blame. It's always someone else's fault. I'm a victim of something. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that all of this focus on self is not producing what it promises. If that's what you believe in, your faith is betraying you. Your system of belief is letting you down. If you're looking for the resources to make your life what it ought to be, then your own heart is, is frankly nothing but a, a black hole. It's a dry well, it's an empty promise, or as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 2, it is a broken cistern that can hold no water, and yet you're crawling down into it, and the world wants us to crawl down into that broken cistern that can hold no water and lap up some of the dust and try to get something nourishing out of it. God was offended by that. In fact, in that Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, my people have committed two sins. He calls the entire cosmos to come and look at this wicked thing They've committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they've dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's just the reality of who we are, and our propensity is to do that. We seek for that satisfaction in entertainment and in pleasure and in, and in our work and in, in all the places, you know, being liked by other people, all the places that are, are just dead ends and don't lead us to God. The doctrine of self-esteem is a bill of goods. Your inner child is nothing but a phantom of Freudian imagination. And any pursuit of a truly abundant life that sets its course on, on the shadows of uh, self-worth is, frankly, it's sabotaged from the start. You'll never get there because that is not the way. The Apostle Paul knew nothing of such introspection. He looked for nothing in his heart that was good to sustain him. He understood that the really important things, the really important truths in life are never going to be found from within. Believe in yourself was not part of his vocabulary. It was contrary to his vocabulary. He had discovered that everything he had ever achieved for himself in reality amounted to nothing more than a pile of garbage in fact, that's the polite use or the polite translation of the word scubala there. 
It means dung, and you can say that in other ways. But that's what it was to him. As far as Paul was concerned, the fact that he was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Benjamite, born on the, or circumcised on the eighth day, become a Pharisee, kept the whole law his whole life, none of that was meritorious for him. None of that could he look at, now that he had met Christ, none of that could he look at in the past and say, that earned me anything positive uh, in terms of God's view of me. To the contrary, it wasn't merit, it was demerit. Everything that I thought was good was demerit. It only piled onto my debt before God. It only made me more self-righteous and unholy. It was all worthless and counted not one whit in the economy of God. And so he writes this letter to the Ephesians. And he reveals a life of true meaning and value and purpose in the eyes of God. And he doesn't play the pop psychologist. He doesn't tell us to believe in ourselves or trap, uh, tap into our, our power of positive thinking. To the contrary, if there is one striking element about Paul's writing that stands out above anything else in these first couple of chapters, and especially chapter 1, is his relentless focus on God. If we were to write this, if someone were to to write to you and say, I'm having some problems with my marriage or with my children or with my work. These are three major topics Paul deals with in Ephesians. And can you help me? Here are the circumstances. What should I do? Begin anywhere you think I need to begin. Where would you start? You know where Paul starts? With God. Your problem is a God problem. And the answer to your problem starts with God. Let's get you reoriented to who God is and who you are in the light of who God is. And Paul is like a compass that knows not how to point at anything but north toward God. The direction of Paul's thinking is, is passionately, exclusively God-centered. And that's the way it should be for us. You know why this is important for us as a church? Because since our very inception back in 1994, Calvary Bible Church, the leaders of Calvary Bible Church have been determined to keep us God-centered, not man-centered, not man-centered, not what can God do for me, not what can I get out of God, not what can I do, what can I do in this life to make my life more joyful and meaningful but rather, who is God and what does that mean for my life? How should I understand God? And when I understand something of God rightly, what, does, what are the implications for how I should understand me and my wife and my children and the people around me? My parents, my grandparents, the people I work with. And it has implications for every little nook and cranny of your life. But if we get it wrong here, we get it wrong everywhere. And so notice how he starts off the letter. A brief introduction, verses 1 and 2, and then he says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why is he so eager to praise God? Here's why he is so eager to jump into worship and praise of God. 
It's because he understands what God has done. He understands that all of life, everything that we have starts with God. And so verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Verse 7, he redeemed us with his blood. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 11, he endowed us with an eternal inheritance. Verse 13, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. I mean, and it goes on, not only that, but Paul then goes on to pray that God will will do even more, namely, and here we see this in... um, in verses 15 through 19, that he will enlighten the eyes of your heart so that you will know the hope of your calling, the riches of our inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of the power of God toward us who believe. Know God, know his power, know his character, know his attributes, know who he is, know what he has done. Everything starts there. He should be the blazing center of your universe. Everything else in your life revolves around that. If God is just one of the things orbiting the main thing, which is you, your happiness, your good feelings, and God's out there as one of the planets orbiting your your little solar system, if your life is meocentric, you're in big trouble. Not only that, but your Christian life isn't working so good. And you don't know why. And he goes on, not only this, but he wants us to know that God's awesome power, which raised Christ Jesus from the dead, was so full of mercy and love toward us. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 And on that first Easter morning, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. God did this. God did this. God did it. And so you have a relationship with God? God did it. God justifies the ungodly. And if you're justified in his sight, then it's because of the work of God. You say, does that mean I don't have any part in it? No, that's not what it means. But it does mean that every part that you have in it is a dependent part. His is completely independent and he always initiates. Now I know if you, perhaps you've noticed or haven't noticed before, but everything Paul reveals in this chapter namely chapter 1 of this letter, has to do with the awesome glory of God. And here's what he says. This glory is a glory that blesses. It is a glory that loves. It is a glory that is full of kindness. It is a glory that lavishes. It is a glory that enlightens. It is a glory that is awesome in power. It's rich in mercy and it's great in love. That's what his glory is about. That's how his glory is described. And so now if you take all of that, and it's coming out of this text, if you take all of that and you compress it, press all of that into one word, what would it be? What would it be? Let me suggest a word. Grace. It's grace. All of it. All of everything he said in chapter 1 about God. You could take it and compress it all into one word. It's grace. 
It's amazing, amazing grace. It's boundless, it's free, it's provoked by nothing outside of himself. He is a God of grace, and he would be that if no human being ever existed. But he created us so that so that that attribute and all of his attributes could have an object to bestow upon. And we are the objects of his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his love. Everything Paul says here reveals one awesome truth about God, namely that he is infinitely gracious to all who believe. And that is the essence of his glory as far as our relationship to him goes. But if you're tracking with what Paul is saying here and what Paul typically says in his theology in Romans and Galatians and everywhere else he talks about salvation, if you're tracking with him rightly, then you probably find yourself asking a question. In fact, Paul here, I think, anticipates that we're going to ask a question when we get to this point. He knows that if we're tracking with him about how gracious God has been and how he's the initiator and we are always the responder, sooner or later, we're going to ask the obvious question, why? Why? Why does God choose to reconcile the ungodly and only the ungodly? Why did God choose to reconcile me? You don't know my heart. You see me as the pastor of this church, and you may think well of me. You don't know my heart. You don't know my past. Why, God, would you save me? And some of you, frankly, here are thinking, I'm, I'm too unworthy of God. I'm too much of a sinner. And you think that only because you don't understand. And frankly, you're making too much of yourself. You're making yourself, your sin, out to be greater than God. And you need to repent to God's glory and to your own joy. And so why? Why, do these, why does he save us? Why is he doing all of this in terms of pouring out all of this blessing upon blessing upon blessing, lavishing us, and choosing to do it even before the foundation of the world? We understand enough about ourselves to know that we don't deserve it. And if we didn't know that before we came to the book of Ephesians, then a, then a brief look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 ought to wrap that up. I mean, look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. How's this for self-esteem? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That helps. I feel better about myself already. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. You used to follow him. Of the spirit, that's Satan, that is now working in the sons of disobedient, uh, disobedience. Among them, we too. We all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, those those passionate desires that were driving us away from God, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature not good, but children of wrath, children who deserve the wrath of God, even as the rest. That's where biblical anthropology starts. 
dead in your transgressions and sins, enemies of God, without hope, without God in this world. And so the question is, in, in light of what God says about us, why is God being so gracious to us? Us, we who deserve wrath. Why is God being so gracious to us? And the answer to that question is in verse 7. And so he writes, so that. Well, that's an important statement. Anytime you see so that, you should probably underline it or highlight it or circle it or do whatever you do on your Kindle or your iPad or your iPhone or your Android that you're doing right now. Just highlight so that anytime you see it because he's telling you purpose, God's purpose here, God's purpose. Why does God do this? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why, God? Why are you doing it? So that there is a day that is to come when I will unveil the riches of my grace in showing kindness to you who are undeserving. That's why. That's why. And that's why the first two words of verse 4 are so glorious. But God. And we were dead in our transgressions and sin. We were following Satan. We were being ruled by the lust of our flesh. We were children of wrath. But God. Not but you. Not but the preacher. Not but the Christian concert or the seminar. But God. But God what? Being rich in mercy? Notice the appeal is not first of all to his action. It's first of all to his character, his attributes. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. You think about the resurrection? God made Christ who was dead come to life. That's what salvation is like. God said to Lazarus, Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Perfect picture of salvation. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, verse 6, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why, God, why? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us. So there's your answer. You see, God has a goal. God is on a mission that is far greater than just simply rescuing rebellious sinners from the hell they deserve. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he has, has had pity on you. But that is not the ultimate goal. It wasn't simply that God was moved with compassion toward you. There is nothing in us there is nothing in us that would compel God to be merciful, kind, and compassionate toward us. It is purely because he is a God of mercy and grace and compassion, and he has a greater goal, something infinitely greater. Do you realize this? Beloved, let me say with all reverence that your salvation is not, the, not an end in itself. 
He wanted Jesus to die to save me. Well, that's true. That is true. But can we just have a little perspective on that? Your salvation is a means to an end, not the end itself. It's a means to the end. Yes, God loves you. He died for you. When you look at the cross, you should see two things. Number one, God hates sin. And I am so sinful. God, I don't want to sin. Help me not sin. Help me to be holy and pure. I want to pursue holiness as you are holy. God, the cross reminds me that you hate sin. But on the other hand, the cross reminds me of how much you love me love me. And the scriptures are full of this truth. The reason that Jesus died is because he loved you, but that's not the final goal. The ultimate goal is much deeper, much weightier, much higher, much, much more securing. And so your salvation is not God's end. Rather, it is a means to a greater end in the sovereign design of God, namely that he might set his own glory on display to be marveled at by all who were created, all whom he has created. That's the ultimate goal. That all creation would bow before him and say, what you have done is marvelous beyond words. That you were that you would justify the ungodly. Who would have thought of that? And this is an awesome truth. But it's not the first time Paul's mentioned it in in Ephesians. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. Paul said, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end or for this purpose that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to what? To the praise of his glory. That's the goal. Look at chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, you were sealed in him, speaking of the Holy Spirit, You are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You have this and you have this and you have this and you have this and all of it is for one ultimate purpose. Glory of God. The glory of God. Why did God pour out his grace on you who believe? So that in the ages to come, age to come, his own glory would be praised. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, how can it be a good thing? How can it be a good thing that God wants us to praise and exalt him? I mean, it's not right for us to be self-exalting. Why is it, why is it right for God to be self-exalting? I mean, when I exalt myself, we got two problems with that. Number one, it involves a lie. And number two, it doesn't help anybody else. And, and so number one, what's the lie? I am worthy to be worshipped. Show me someone who believes that, and I'll show you an angry person. Because other people don't like to worship that person. Oh, that's why there's so much depression in Hollywood. They believe, they demand, they deserve worship. And when it doesn't come, and even when it does come, they know in their hearts it's not real. That people are being misled. They're not worthy. 
And so it's a lie. That's the first problem. Secondly, it doesn't demonstrate love to other people. It's not for their good. To demand that you worship me is not for your good. It's for my own selfish pleasure. That's the only reason, and that's the only effect. That's why it's not okay for me to do. When I ask other people to worship me, uh, tacitly demand that people worship me, it's not good for them, and it's based on a lie that, I'm, that so- somehow I'm worthy to be worshipped. But you know what? That's not true of God. There are some things that are right for God to do that are forbidden for us to do. It's wrong for us to be self-exalting because it's not in the best interest of other people. Here's what love dictates. Love dictates um, not that I get other people to bow down to me, but rather that I serve them and look out for their greater good. To love is to give whatever I have that you need because God wants me to. That's love. For God so loved the world that he gave. I hope we're learning that as a church. And so what does love require of God? First of all, God is worthy to be worshipped because he is God. But secondly, love demands that God call us to worship him. Love requires that God calls people, listen to this, that God calls people to prize, to delight in, to treasure that which is infinitely precious and valuable above all things for their own eternal joy. And so God's duty is to point you to that which is most glorious, that which is most satisfying, that which is true and real and worthy to be praised for your good. But here's the thing. In his case, that thing that is most highly to be treasured, praised, and worshipped is none other than himself. He is the ultimate good. He is the ultimately glorious one. He is the greatest treasure. To have Christ, to have God, is to have everything. And as John Piper says, God will not be an idolater. He will worship no other God besides himself. He is the only one worthy. That's what love requires of him. So the most most loving thing God could do for us is to make whatever sacrifice is required to enable us to praise his glory forever. And that's the backstory on John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Why did he do that? He did it so that in the end we would all bow in joyful worship and praise of the glorious eternal God. And by the way, this has always been God's approach. God has always loved his people in this way. He's always called his people to himself. And for the same reasons, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11 My son, Calvin, reminded me of this text the other day, perfectly timed by the Lord for my encouragement. But I offer it to you in this context, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. Here's what the Lord said to Israel. For for the sake of my name, I delay my wrath against you. And for my praise, I restrain it for you. 
in order not to cut, cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will give to none other? There's one thing that God is most passionate about and must be for our good, and that is his own glory. And by the way, have you ever considered the fact that God does not only want to set his glory on display for us to see? There are others that God would see, God would have see his glory and be amazed by it. He is He also set his plan in motion so that the heavenly host, both angelic and demonic, might see it and be amazed. You say, really? Where did he get that from? Same context, except chapter 3. Look at verses 8 through 11. Here's Paul. To me, and notice the perspective, the great apostle Paul. To me, the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for all ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that, looky there, there's another purpose statement, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Beloved, it's the same thing. Except now he's telling us that he's going to magnify the glory of his grace and his wisdom toward us in saving us by the death of Christ. He wants not only us to see that on that day and bow down as we read earlier today or sung about earlier today, but also for all of the heavenly host to bow down and worship. And that's what will happen. And that day, every knee will bow. And in a sense, God is out to vindicate his own wisdom before the eyes of rulers and authorities in heavenly places, especially the demonic host, especially Satan. To them, to them, it seemed foolishness to send God's only Son down to earth to save a bunch of self-willed, self-consumed, condemned sinners. I mean, doesn't a holy God just give people what they deserve? But God's plan was rooted in infinite wisdom, deeper wisdom. Wisdom that came from before the creation of the world. Rooted in the eternality of God himself. He would save sinners, that the entire cosmos would bow down in wonder, awe, and praise of God himself. You know what that's going to look like? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Just a taste of it. I mean, it's like looking through the knothole of a fence, right? We get a little picture of it, and we're not sure entirely of what we're seeing, but it's glorious. Revelation chapter 7 is what we find. Verses 9 through 17, John says, After these things, God is just showing him all kinds of things. 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, and blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. And all the hosts said, Amen, Amen. And to one of the elders Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. Which is just a polite way of saying, I don't have any idea who those people are. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb is in the center of the throne, and he will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water, the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's the day he's been talking about all along. The day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. And beloved, someday the curtain is going to be drawn back and God is going to say, look, look at them. Us. Look at them. Look at what I have done. And we will be breathless. And there will stand his church, saved by God's kindness and his grace alone. And then his wisdom will be vindicated. Then every knee will bow before him. And give him the glory that's due his name. Okay, this is uh, Ephesians 2, 7 through 10. But here I've spent almost the entire time on verse 7. I mean, what about verses 8 and 9? I mean, those are the ones we we memorize, right? I mean, I would dare say that most people in this room could quote, maybe with a little help, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I mean, you've been to Awanas? You've been to Sunday school? You've learned this. Sometime in your life, if you're a Christian and been along in church for a long time, do we truly understand the context? Do we understand what Paul is saying in these scriptures? We tend to memorize scriptures out of context to our own hurt. And so the purpose of this, the reason I invested all of this time in verse 7 is because I believe that unless we have a handle on verse 7, then verses 8 through 10 are not going to be as clear to us as they ought to be. And we might miss Paul's point. By grace you have been saved. Now, 
Usually when we memorize from this text, we only work on verses 8 and 9. But notice Paul's flow of thought does not end until we've read verse 10. So let's read it all together or quote it. And here we go. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a glorious text. But what I want you to notice is the very first word, for. In the Greek, it's the word gar, for. You say, are, are you really going to camp out on that? Yep. It's so important, beloved. We need to understand how to study the Bible. This is basic. When you see for or therefore, you need to ask, wherefore is that therefore, therefore? That's what I was taught. Why is it there? What is for? Four points backwards. For says, if you're going to memorize a verse out of context, at least pay attention to the grammar, Four points back to something that is an interpretive key to what he's about to say. You have to understand what has come before, before you can understand the next verse. For, by grace, you have been saved. If you jump to the, by grace, you have been saved, then you've missed a major section of his flow of thought. And a very important one. And so the four tells us that what we're about to read is inextricably connected to the previous thought. So before we can ask questions like these, what does he mean by grace? And why does he say salvation is not of ourselves? And why is salvation through faith and not by works? Why must it be a gift from God? Why does he exclude all human boasting from the salvation equation? What does he mean when he says we are God's workmanship? What does created in Christ Jesus, what does that mean? Before we explore any of those questions, we first must understand what comes behind the word for. And the truth that, become, that comes behind the word for is this that God's purpose in saving sinners is so that in the ages to come, he might show off the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. That's why it's by grace. God has a greater goal, not just to be gracious to us, but to magnify his glory. And if that is his goal, then the next three, first, three verses make perfect sense because if they are not exactly the way Paul has described salvation in these three verses, then the glory comes back to us instead of him. And his purpose would be thwarted. And by the way, look at verses 11 through 14. Here's what he says. Um... So that in the ages to come, there might be a host without number who will find their eternal delight in praising him for his glorious grace. Is that in chapter 2? Chapter 1, 11 through 14. And we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, you having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. As I said, Paul's whole letter is so far is relentlessly Godward in focus. It's all about what God has done for everyone who belonged to him. And so why does he tell us that we have been saved by grace? It is so that we will understand that we are saved by God alone. Why does he say that it is not of yourselves? He says that so that we will understand that we are saved by God alone. Why does he say that it is by faith and not by works? He says that so that we would understand that we are saved by God alone. And why does he say that salvation is a gift? He says it because he wants us to understand that we are saved by God alone. And why is human boasting excluded from the equation? Because the goal of salvation is the glory of God alone. And what does he mean when he says that we are his workmanship? He means that salvation is the very handy work of God alone. And why does, what does he mean when he says that that we are created in Christ Jesus. He means that we began life spiritually the same way man began existence physically. It was by the miracle of creation. God spoke and it came into existence. In fact, Paul uses that very same analogy in 2 Corinthians to say, this is what your salvation is like. Salvation is by grace apart from works so that it would be by God alone, unto good works, not by good works, but unto good works. We must never get the cart before the horse. Beloved, we always have to have this right. There's a reason why Ephesians is set up like it is. It starts with God and then moves to the problems of man. It must always start with God. It must always start with God. Paul does the same thing in his other letters. Read Romans he doesn't even get to man's issues until chapter 12, and there's only 16 chapters. We must never get the cart before the horse. And honestly, when a church gets the cart before the horse, they'll be doing many wonderful things and never get to the real issues. Never get to the things that matter most to God. We must never, we must never put what we do in our salvation before what God did in our salvation. For as Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, from him and through him and to him are what? All things. All things. To him be the glory forever. And so you see, our salvation is all about the glory of God. We are saved by God alone so that all the glory will be God's alone. And now the goal of our lives should be to zero in on God's goal for us so that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. You know what that means? It means we understand that God's final purpose is that his glory would be magnified, set on display for all creation to wonder at. And so if that's the goal, live like that. Whether you eat or drink, how you relate to people, 
Everything. Do it all to the glory of God. You want to know why God wants you to love your wife, men, as Christ loves the church? There's something greater here at stake than your happiness with your wife, having a good marriage. What's at stake is whether or not the glory of the infinitely gracious God is set on display by your marriage. That's what's at stake, not your reputation. That's me-centered. It's man-centered. Single men and women, you know why you should be content with your singleness as long as God has you single? It's because God wants to use you to glorify him in extraordinary ways that are completely out of bounds for married people. You have more freedom. Paul stresses that in 1 Corinthians 7. Children, you want to know why why Paul tells you in chapter 6 of Ephesians to obey your parents in the Lord? Well, he says it right there. He says, for this is right. But why is it right? What makes obedience right in the eyes of God? It's right because that's how you as children set the glory of God on display in your life. Listen, you go out with your family to a restaurant, and there you are sitting with your parents, and the world is watching. They're either laughing themselves silly because of the way you're acting, or they're going, hmm, something different about them. And it's not so much weird as it is wonderful. And God's glory is set on display. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your God. And you've seen your adults. You want to know why God has chosen to keep you around as long as he has. And some of you are saying, I hope it's not much longer. (laughs) There's a reason for it. He wants to magnify his glory in your life in a way that can only be accomplished through older men and women who love Christ and who are suffering well. And maybe you're an older person who's not suffering. And God wants you to glorify, magnify, and adore him with a life of health. That's why. Beloved, here is our security in Christ. Here is our security. Here is our hope. Here is our confidence. Here is our purpose for living. It's all wrapped up in this. God has saved us not because we were worthy, but because his ultimate purpose is to set his own glory on display for creation to marvel at and to wonder at for all eternity. That's why you were saved, not because you were good, but because you were ungodly. There's your security. Don't get all wrapped up in did I believe enough? Was I sincere enough? Was I righteous enough? Did I come to him with a pure heart? The answer to that is no, 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 and no. But God. Isn't that it? And now we know why. And now we know why it has to be this way. And now we know how to live. And now we understand our calling, our purpose. All of it makes sense when we understand how God has revealed, what God has revealed about his mission. And it should make significant changes in the way that we live. And all of it is for God's glory and for our own unspeakable joy. Let's pray.
Father, we are unworthy still, and our only worth is found in Christ. You loved us. You loved us even before the creation of the world. You loved us before we did anything good or bad, and you loved us when we acted badly. And then you saved us. By the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, you saved us. But not as an end in itself, but but to this end, that you would be magnified and glorified in the salvation of sinners like me. Praise you. Praise you. We glorify your name now and will for eternity. Thank you for being our God. And by your grace, Father, may we be faithful children. We love you and we praise you for this hour in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.